I want to thank everybody who came out to Discovery Park yesterday. It was a great turnout. It was good to see all the kids having fun. If you haven't been there, I encourage you to go. I'm sure we'll take another church trip there before too long. And I uh, also want to say a special thank you to Joe and Marty. Uh, when my power went out at 9 o'clock on a Saturday night in the middle of the storm, I was pretty sure it was not coming back on until Sunday. Uh, but it did. In a couple hours, it was back on. So I appreciate them and all the efforts of those guys who keep the lights on for us. Well, welcome, everybody, to the Dover Church of Christ, especially some of you who are visiting with us. We're glad you're with us this morning. As a church, we've been examining one of the most famous passages in the Bible. That is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And our study brings us this week to Matthew 6. And with the way Matthew 6 is laid out, we're actually going to uh, kind of skip a few verses at the beginning. We'll talk about those next week when we talk about what Jesus says about giving and fasting. Because this week, we're going to talk about prayer. And I actually want to begin our lesson by reading a part of a parallel passage to this one. It is from the Gospel of Luke chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and uh, turn there. We're just going to read one verse. Luke 11 begins, That one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. In the Jewish tradition, it was custom for well-known teachers and rabbis to, to teach their followers or their disciples the prayer that they personally prayed. Memorized prayer was a big part of the Jewish faith. And so the disciples respect Jesus' teaching ability. They, they've heard him speak, obviously. And, and so in Luke 11, they hear him pray. And they're so moved, they're so impacted by how Jesus spoke to God that, that they make a request. And I find this request to be very revealing of their, their inner desires for, for closeness or for intimacy with God. They say, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to speak to God. And when I read this, I'm reminded of that, that painfully honest cry of the father in Mark 9, who is literally on his knees, weeping, begging Jesus to heal his son. And he cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. He's expressing faith, but he says, I know I'm weak in this area. I believe, help my unbelief. And I think there's powerful, deep honesty in words like that. It's an honesty that reveals just that, that desire of someone who realizes just how far away from God they really are. They understand how where they're at in life may not exactly be where they want to be. And so the man cried, I believe, help my unbelief. The disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. They said, we want to pray as you do. We, we want to have that relationship with God that you have. And they, and they recognize that, that Jesus, they say, you know what, you're the only one who can teach us this from what we've seen. You're the only person who can do what you do. Lord, teach us to pray. I think it's wise in any discussion we have as a church about our prayer life to begin just by asking God to, to help us learn to pray more effectively, more honestly. Ask God to move it in our hearts, to, to open our minds, that we can pray more like Jesus prayed. Heard a minister say one time that in Christianity, prayer is more caught than taught. And most of us, I would bet, have never been formally sat down and taught to pray. What we do is we hear lots of prayers, often in the same few settings, either at the dinner table or assembled together, and often from the same handful of people. So we start to pick up on sort of the word bank of phrases and statements that are made in prayer. We pick up on the style or the tone of different people who pray. And we, we take all these things that we observed and hopefully in our minds sort of form our, synthesize our way of praying. And so we catch 
We, we kind of piece together the things we've heard people do when they pray. But rarely does anyone ever sit us down and say, this is how you pray. This is how you speak when you speak to God. Which is, I guess, why I felt the disciples' request so moving. And so we'll spend the rest of our time this morning continuing the sermon from Matthew 6. But it, it felt appropriate to begin our lesson this morning just by saying out loud as much for my benefit as for anyone else's, Lord, teach us to pray. And so, in Luke 11 and in Matthew 6, Jesus does. In the fuller version of this event in Matthew 6, Jesus begins by making some, some introductory statements before getting to the prayer. They sound mainly like a string of do nots, but he begins in verse 5, and that is verse 5 of Matthew 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. The word hypocrite in Jesus' time was, was not actually a bad word. It was just a word used to describe the kind of theater actors who, who wore a mask and impersonated other people. The Hippocrates were, were skilled at pretending to be somebody they weren't. Which sort of leads to what we mean today when we use the word hypocrite. We're describing someone who, who looks and appears one way but is actually another. And so Jesus says, first, when you pray, do not pray like these people. They are people who are concerned with how things look more than how things are. And if, and if you were with us last week, that was one of our major points then. That, that Jesus says God doesn't care about people looking righteous as near as much as he cares about people being righteous. So Jesus begins by saying, you, you do not pray to appear a certain way. You do not pray to be seen. He follows that up by, by condemning the empty phrases of the Gentiles. And we've probably heard this verse before, particularly as it pertains to certain interpretations of the Lord's Prayer. But, but understand that the Gentiles, specifically the Greeks, the pagans, they constructed very artful prayers. The, the Greeks saw praying to the gods really as just a, another form of public performance. And so to them it was art, it was theater. And so you prayed to show off how poetic and how intellectual you were. All the great words that you knew and all the rhetoric that you had been taught. How much of a skilled orator that you were. And it became this sort of competition that, that whoever could speak in a manner that was more convincing or more persuasive or more artful had won the favor of the gods. So when you prayed, you were really just trying to glorify yourself. You were, you were competing with other people. They had a very different view of prayer than the Jews or even you and I. And so Jesus says, do not pray like them either. He says, when you pray to the God of Isaac and the God of Abraham, when you pray to the God, you don't need to pray to be heard. He says, Jesus speaks of a God who already knows what you need, who knows every hair on your head, who, who knows what's pressing on your heart and what's weighing on your mind. And so Jesus says, you, you don't need to pray to be seen. You don't need to pray to be heard. He says, instead, pray like this. Our Father, chart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You won't find me reading the old King James very often in my own personal study. It's just a personal choice of mine. But I feel like if you're going to read one of the most memorized and recited passages in all of Scripture, you do well to, to read it in the version everybody has probably learned it in. It's a bit of a personal choice, but for me, things like the Lord's Prayer or Psalm 23, I feel like they just resonate more with the kind of English nobody speaks anymore for some reason. It's a tricky thing, this passage, this prayer. For many of us, you immediately think of uh, perhaps the teaching you've heard against the, the reciting word for word of the Lord's Prayer, which is a discussion for another time. But I, uh, in terms of the prayer, I actually think there's something kind of uniting about it. Sort of like John 3.16 or Psalm 23.4. You can be sure that anyone who's even heard enough Bible just to profess the name of Christ has certainly at some point in time said these words. When I think of the, the, the universal church, of all Christians all the time, I think of the impact of Jesus' few words on how to pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. From the opening line of his prayer, Jesus is communicating two things. One of them is incredibly new, one of them is incredibly old. We've mentioned before about the weight the Jews gave to just the name of the Lord. The, the unutterable yod Varve, Yahweh, Jehovah. The very name of God was associated with incredible glory and the divine presence of God. And it was, it was taken so seriously that the Lord's name was, was not even to be said aloud except by the high priest on special days and in a certain place. Which is why lesser titles in the Bible like Adonai, which means Lord, or Elohim, which means God, began to have more popular use than, than anyone ever daring to say out loud the name of the Lord. Around Jesus' time, whenever scribes would make copies of Scripture... And if this scripture contained the full name of the Lord, rather than copy it letter for letter, sometimes they would just use one letter or even put a little dot or even a blank space for fear of sullying the name of the Lord. And if an official copy, like a real temple copy of scripture was being made, they would take extra great care when writing the name of the Lord. And if a single transcription error occurred anywhere on that page, the whole page was burned and thrown out. It was actually buried in a special place just for Scripture because they said, we dare not defile the name of the Lord. Using the Lord's name in vain or taking it lightly was a very serious thing, which is why Jesus begins by saying, hallowed or, or holy, consecrated is your name. And then all of this heaviness this sanctity, the weightiness is completely thrown off kilter by the address that Jesus gives right before he says that because he begins actually by saying, Our Father. When speaking to the great and mighty, powerful, fearsome God whose name cannot even be uttered out loud, Jesus says, Our Father. The weight of the name of the Lord was a very uh, great and time-honored Jewish tradition. But to speak to God with this kind of comfortable familiarity as if he was your father, that was very new. Certainly the Jews thought of God in a fatherly way. Malachi 2.10 says, Have we all not one father? Have not one God created us? 
But when you addressed God, you spoke to Him with the, the significance, the glory that God was owed, which often meant formality. And so this level of closeness that Jesus speaks of, this was totally new. It would be one thing for Jesus to pray that way. Jesus who was God, Jesus who was the Son of God, as, as John 1.1 1, 1 says, Jesus declares His oneness with the Father in John 10.30. It would be one thing for Jesus to call God Father. But Jesus tells His disciples, I want you to call God Father. I want you to have this closeness, this same relationship when you talk to God. In the original language, the, the word Father is actually the very first word of the prayer. It sets the tone for everything that comes after it. it. It communicates both closeness and authority. He says, when you're speaking to your heavenly Father, the one you submit to, the one you grant the position of supreme authority in your life, He is also the one who loves you, the one who cares for you deeply, the one who wants the absolute best for you. In one line, Jesus says, when you pray, remember the weight, the glory, and the holiness do the name of the Lord. And at the same time, call Him your heavenly Father. To call God our Father means to put His authority over all other authority. To put His will above our will. For in the next verse, Jesus says, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done. It is an address that means total submission to God. It also means that I think most of us get this one tiny aspect of prayer wrong. Because it means recognizing that when you pray, that ultimately you're, you're not asking God to come down and conform the world to your will. You're actually asking God to confirm yourself to His will. And I think that might sound confusing, so I'll say it a little differently. But when we pray, I think we often make the mistake of thinking that our, our goal is to petition God or, or ask God that He will reach down and bend things in the world to what we want and to our will. But ultimately... Ultimately, what should be happening if we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, is we're asking God to reach down and change us and transform us to His will. If you want to understand just how extreme Jesus is when He says this, turn to Luke 22. Almost every week I've used the word radical at some point in a sermon, not intentionally, but because just what Jesus is saying and doing is, is so incredibly mind-blowing that just saying, wow, that's... That's whack, Jesus. Just doesn't seem to really capture it. And I would again here say that, that what Jesus is doing is radical. I want you to see how seriously, how thoroughly Jesus means what he's saying here. Jesus is praying in the garden. It's an iconic scene. His disciples are with him. We've had the Last Supper. He's about to be arrested. And in Luke twenty two thirty nine, 39, Jesus takes this moment to pray. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw... And knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This passage makes very clear the agony of Jesus in this moment. To me, it makes very clear that he knows exactly what is going to happen next. He's about to die. 
in one of the most torturous, gruesome ways the Romans have devised up to this time. It's, it's an execution reserved only for criminals, for traitors, for enemies of the state. There's a medical term for what's going on. It's called hematidrosis. It's when the, the extreme physical, emotional stress has caused your blood vessels to, to rupture and sort of feed into the sweat glands and you begin to release blood like sweat. It says it's activated by severe mental anxiety with a fight-or-flight response so strong that it causes hemorrhaging. It is observed in individuals in fear for their lives, such as prisoners awaiting execution or soldiers preparing for battle. It's the definition of hematidrosis from a medical source I found. Jesus is aware that he is about to die. It's not going to be quick. It's not going to be easy. And when he approaches the throne of God, one final time before that happens in the garden, he sits down and he says, if this is possible, if you are willing, if it is within the realm of possibility, please remove this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You will not find anybody in the Bible or alive who practices what they preach more than Jesus does. Submission literally unto death, to the will of the Father. That's what Jesus is talking about. Jesus says when you pray, whether in good times or in bad, in, in humility or abundance, whether you're full or you're hungry, whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're in life or even facing death, Jesus says, not my will, but yours, Father, be done. That's how you should pray. Pray while understanding that, that the will of the Father surpasses all things in life, above all things in the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread. A fun biblical note from this little line here, if you're into that sort of thing is that this is a, a word that we don't see anywhere else in the Bible for daily bread. It's a word that they didn't find anywhere in Greek literature until after this time. In fact, it's widely believed that Jesus invented this word when he was speaking to really perfectly encapsulate what he's talking about. It's a compound word and it sort of gets at a couple different things. But, but the idea is that Jesus says, give us what we need for today. It's almost certainly connected to the Hebrew idea of manna from heaven. And if you remember when the Jews would go out and collect the manna, they wouldn't keep enough for the next day. They, wouldn't, they weren't to store it up except for the Sabbath. They weren't to, to keep it and sort of hoard it up. But they would pray, God, give us enough for today. And Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. It's a statement that Jesus himself explains a little bit more in about verse 25 through 35. But it's a lesson for another time. But I would at least consider verse 34 from Matthew 6. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. One of my mom's favorite cartoons growing up was Winnie the Pooh, which meant when I was a kid, one of my favorite cartoons was Winnie the Pooh. And I envy anyone who is allowed to sit around all day in a t-shirt eating whatever they want. But I also enjoy just the simple wisdom of kids' cartoons, at least back, back then. Because he always spoke with this tired, like sleepy, half-awake voice that made it sound like he really wasn't interested or didn't really care in what you were talking about. 
But if you watch the show, he actually cared a lot. He said things that made you realize he cared a lot. And, and Pooh would comment on things like friendship and say, any day spent with you is my favorite day. So today is my new favorite day. He had a wonderful perspective on hard work. He said, people say nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. And he was certainly a person who had his priorities in order. He said, it is more fun to talk with someone who does not use long, difficult words, but rather short, easy words, like what about lunch? As an adult, I sometimes miss how easy life's problems could be solved when you were a kid. You know, like the simple answers to hard questions seem perfectly fine. And without sounding too blasphemous, I think there's almost a childlike simplicity and yet incredible wisdom in Matthew 6.34, sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It sounds clever and, and really wise if you're a kid, but it sounds even deeper if you're an adult. You can tell a young child, just worry about today, and three hours is an eternity, so tomorrow is forever from then. So when you say, just worry about today, they go, okay. And they walk off, and that, that, that's fine with them. But you can tell an adult the same thing, and there's still deep wisdom in that, but for a completely opposite reason. As adults, there's so much going on in our life, and, and we're so worried about our family and our kids and our jobs. And, and perhaps you noticed today that as they were walking out the door, their shoes were a little tight, so you're like, oh my goodness, next year I'm going to have to buy more shoes. And it's August, we've got everybody buy school supplies again, we've got to go do that. And then you've got a bill in the mail for the thing that's through the 28th, and oh yeah, your mom has to go see a specialist, but they've got to go... And so every now and then, it's good for somebody just to tell you, hey, just, just worry about today. Just get through today. It's not worry about tomorrow or next week or next month, but today has enough stress and enough trouble on its own. Now, Jesus isn't forbidding us from praying for next week or for next month. It's not that. But, but I think of it as really this suggestion that spiritually, perhaps your focus should just be on getting through today. I think for some of us, the request to get through today is such a big enough ask from God that we say, man, if I could just get through today, that would be a huge blessing. When we approach God, it would be good for us to focus spiritually just on getting through today. We can pray about tomorrow, tomorrow. This evening, we're going to talk a little bit about forgiving as we forgive others and not being led into temptation and being delivered from evil. But as we close this morning, I want you to consider how the church can pray for you. And if you're a member of the church, perhaps how you can pray for somebody else. How you can pray in a way that calls both God Father but respects the great glory and the weight due His name. How you can pray in a way where you recognize that it's, it's God's will that has to subsume everything we want in this life. And perhaps pray just to get through today. If there's something we can petition God for you on your behalf. If you're wanting God's will to be done in your life, but you, you don't understand what that looks like or how to get there. Perhaps you're a member of the church. Again, I would ask you to consider praying how for somebody else. To consider what God's desire and what his will looks like in somebody else's life. If you're not a member of the church. If you don't know what it means to call God Father. To be a Christian. To be a part of the body of Christ. We would love to talk with you about changing that. It's a decision that can be made today if you're ready. If you're with us this morning and this invitation is for you. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing.